Hello, I'm Anita Arnand and thank you for downloading BBC Radio 4's Any Answers, the sister programme to Any Questions. Good afternoon, welcome to Any Answers. So it happened just metres from the Houses of Parliament. A homeless man died in the cold this week. What does that say about us as a society? And what did you want our political leaders to do in response? If you work with homeless charities, if you've experienced it yourself, particularly keen to hear from you, 03700 100 444 is the number to call. Uh, it's been half term for many of you. We're in the final straight. Uh, but for some children, that has just meant holiday hunger. So should we could we pay for decent meals for children on the lowest incomes? Uh, 365 days a year, that's how many days they need to eat. Should we be providing those meals all year round? Also, we can talk about Brexit and the impact it might have on our fishing industry, uh, on the environment, on the price of fish and chips. And uh, finally, uh, well, look, you all remember seeing those pictures, grainy CCTV pictures largely of young British people, men and women, leaving our shores to go and fight for so-called Islamic State. Some of them have now been captured. What should be done with them? Should they be sent to Guantanamo Bay? Should they be tried at an international court? Should they be tried right here at the Old Bailey? What serves justice serves Britain's interests best? 03700 100 444 is the number to call. You can email any.answers at bbc.co.uk. Of course, you can text us, you can tweet us. If you're going to tweet us, please just use the hashtag BBCAQ. And there's an awful lot of traffic on Twitter on this particular subject. Calls on this too. We'll start there. William Snowden, our first caller this afternoon. Good afternoon, William. Hello. Hello there, William. What, what do you? What would you have done with these young men we're talking about this week who have been captured? Well, the young men's rather polite, isn't it? Um, we all know what they went there to do, and the precedent is a legal precedent. I mean, when I heard the question, which posed the three things you've suggested: um, tried in this country, taken to Guantanamo Bay, or the International Court at the Hague, my response was none of the above. Someone mentioned other jurisdictions. And the other jurisdiction is the legal precedent that if you commit an offence in a country, irrespective of your nationality, then you are subject to that country's um, legal system, laws and uh, consequence. Mm. What about if there is little faith in the judicial process in those countries? Mm. Now, that would be case of moral relativism, wasn't it? We rather take a superior view of other countries. But let's be clear, these were Islamic terrorists, and it's rather poetic that Islamic terrorists should be tried in an Islamic country and subject to Islamic Sharia law. I think that's rather just myself. You think, okay, all right, okay, so, I mean, is it moral relativism, though, to have a very clear view on, on what justice looks like, that justice you have to have <clears throat> representation in a court. You have to have someone who is uh, going to consider the actual evidence laid before them and then reach a verdict. Is that any kind of relative, or is that just the way we look at justice? Well, is that your presumption that that would not happen in Syria? Damascus, after all, has got a long history. It's the oldest inhabited, continuously inhabited city in the world. It's 4,500 years old. So I think we've got to be careful about being... Uh, rather superior in our attitudes. I don't know what would happen in Islamic courts because I've never been subject to the law there. But I think once you go to a country and commit the kind of offences that they've allegedly committed, Mm. you have to suffer the consequences. If someone from abroad comes here 
and commits an offence in Britain, we don't suggest they should be uh, deported to their country of origin, do we? Okay. well, so if you have full confidence in the judicial process in those countries, let's just say, okay, that that you are right. William Snowden, you're absolutely right. They will face a fair trial. They will get that. But anyway, carry on. Well, you don't think they're going to face... Well, well no, tell me what you know. think. They, they, mean, okay, so think... if... But, but if they do what they don't, that's that's neither here nor there to you? Yes. Okay. Because once you make a decision mm. to commit an offence in a country, you're going to be subject to the rule of that country, the, the rule of law, whatever the rule of law is. Well, what about the question of lost... What, what about the what, the argument that went on in the, in the House this week was what we lose by not trying them here? So, one, there's the question of intelligence... Uh, you learn a lot more when you have somebody in your jurisdiction and they go through your due process. And we have heard time and time again from the security services that they are up against forces that they have not experienced in over 30 years. Um, There's the loss of intelligence potentially um, and also the example that it sets for others. That was another point that was raised very clearly in the House this week that, you know, people, justice has to be seen to be done in this country. Well, I think the example it sets to others would be very clear if they're tried in Syria. That consequence would be very grave, wouldn't it? Um, with respect to the other things, I think there's a greater cost in us bringing them here. Um, not just, I mean, we've got to remember they've been stripped of British citizenship. So unless that's just vacuous, that means something. But apart from that, bringing them here would be a cost to our system, pressure on our courts, pressure on our prisons, and also the the fear of indoctrination once they're in prison. We've seen that happen already. And if they're so militant and so mm. extreme in their views, they're going to perhaps indoctrinate others who are at the moment aren't of that persuasion. Okay. We've seen it happen, and I think that's a real fear. So I think for all those reasons, it's not a good idea to bring them back here. They don't have British, British citizenship anymore, and they should be subject to the laws of the land where they committed the offence. I think that's the legal okay. precedent. OK, William, thank you very much indeed. Uh, there are uh, texts and tweets coming in agreeing with you. This is from Tom in Hereford, who says, any jihadis captured outside the UK should be tried in the country where the alleged crimes were committed. Another one here, uh, the ISIS murderous terrorists should be treated as enemy combatants and sent to Guantanamo or tried as the Yazidis or the Kurds see fit. Uh, Eric says uh, one of the men was born in Sudan to Sudanese parents. The other was born to a Greek and a Ghanaian. Both are dual nationals. Neither should ever be allowed back here. Let's take another call. John Lloyd is calling us. John, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, I don't think they should go to Guantanamo, definitely. And I don't think they should be tried at the Old Bailey because uh, ISIS is a threat to the international community, not to any specific group of people or or, or, or particular nation. ISIS is against anyone who does not agree with their diabolical diabolical vision. Um, And and they specifically are against the rule of law and all the things that uh, the international community aspires to. Like I said, the rule of law, Mm -hmm. human rights, uh, religious tolerance, diversity. And uh, for that reason, I think they should stand trial in an international court that represents those uh, values that we aspire to. What about William's point that actually that's a luxury that we don't need to afford them? I just disagree with it. I think I think uh, we we need to we need to uh, stand against everything they they stand for. And in my opinion, only a, uh, an international court 
which represents the values of the uh, uh, the the values that the international community aspires to uh, would be the appropriate place for them to be tried in. Mm. I I was looking to see what other nationals um, or other nations have have decided to do. And and there is a a story in the Washington Post which says that the French foreign minister has decided that anyone who has been arrested in Syria or Iraq can be judged by local authorities, anyone of French origin, which is pretty much the, the point that William was making and that if you... If you look down upon their judicial systems in those countries, it's, as he put it, moral relativism. You're saying, you know, that you're actually better than they are. And and William did quite honestly say he didn't care what happened to them in those courts or what kind of trial they had. But the French have also said, look, it's local authorities that should deal with these because they committed these acts in Syria against Syrian people, against Turkish people. Those are the people that they hurt the most. Those are the people they need to face. Well, I, I still stand by my the, the point I'm making that they're a threat to the international, uh, the values of the international community. Uh, when you say Syria, are, are you expecting them to be judged by uh, a court in Damascus? Um, uh, they're being held at the moment, I believe, by, by the Kurds, mm. who are actually uh, fighting, uh, uh, fighting ISIS and also not... Uh, um, uh, an ally of 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 uh, of Damascus, so there's that confusion there of uh, what is the legal legal authority. It seems to me what jurisdiction actually has power. Mm. But I still uh, I still insist that uh, it's it's the they're a threat to the international community. Well, the 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 values that the international community aspires to and that we uh, at our best uphold and. We should uh, therefore um, uh, try them in that right. an international court. John, thank you for your call. Mike Brayshaw uh, has sent an email agreeing with you. In the same way that a tribunal has been set up in The Hague for conventional war crimes, surely it is not beyond the international community, stroke United Nations, to create a parallel, tailored judicial system for trying the accused perpetrators of worldwide extreme terrorism, providing non-partisan legal protest. Uh, Paul says, if the UK authorities weren't so politically correct and frightened to tackle Muslim terrorism in this country, these jihadis would not have been created in the first place. Craig Hall says the rule of law distinguishes us from savages. Uh, And Paul Tremberth says, uh, those who find legal process an irritation don't expect to find themselves on the wrong side of a miscarriage of justice, do they? Uh, Let's take Simon Diggin, who's calling. Hello, Simon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Hi. What did you want to say? And basically, my, my view is that because these individuals have committed their crimes in Syria and in Iraq, that is where they should stand trial. I think there's something really important about the idea of justice, not only being done, but being seen to be done. And whatever crimes these individuals have committed against British and American citizens, and they've committed horrific crimes, they have committed far worse against Syrian and Iraqi people. And the Syrian and Iraqi people are as entitled as we would be to seeing justice done in their country. And so I'm with the view that they should be sent back to Syria and Iraq uh, to face justice there. Yeah, you heard John's very salient point, though, didn't you? Is Whose jurisdiction will it be anyway? Because they are the majority of these people, and the French too, 100 fighters that I was referring to, who France has pretty much washed their hands off, they've also been captured by Kurdish fighters. Yeah. The Brits that we're talking about, they're also with Kurdish fighters. The Kurds aren't going yeah. to hand them over to the, the Syrian authorities in Damascus, and some may say, nor should they. Um so what, the Kurds are going to try them 
in their own courts, these sort of makeshift yeah, I, I courts? I mean, how, how would it work? I, mean, I think what basically happens in some cases, you just have to detain them. Um, the detain, analogy, detain them without any, any kind of trial? I mean, the, the analogy I would offer is, is that what happened at the end of the, end of the Second World War, and indeed it's happened at the end of many other conflicts, including the sort of wars amongst people that we're dealing with at the moment. In some cases, people detained, perhaps sometimes for years, and then tried when the situation is stable enough for them to be tried properly. I mean, at the end of the Second World War, I mean, war crime trials, in, you know, in some cases, in, in Eastern Europe didn't finish from 1949-1950. That's five years after the war. Mm. We've still got the Bosnian war trials going on, um, and similarly things have happened in places like Africa. So it's not unreasonable for them to be detained until the situation is sufficiently stable for them to receive... It, but um, isn't, there, fair, isn't, fair there, isn't there a world of difference between being held at Spandau or for waiting, uh, being held by an international body waiting a Nuremberg trial or being held until you can face... Uh, some kind of international court at The Hague with oversight, with judicial well, process, than being held by I, Kurdish I fighters? That, I think that's a little insulting to the Kurds. I mean, I've worked with the Kurds. Um, I was in Iraq in 04 and 05. Um, they are you know, an intelligent, stable people with a strong sense of justice and a strong sense of law. Um, and to suggest that only the West, with international standards, is capable of administering justice, I think, frankly, is vaguely insulting. Mm, OK. It's an, a point that's been made by others. Thank you very much indeed. 03700 100 Tom French says, Terrorists should be tried in a court of law. That's what distinguishes us from them. It's why we remain civilised. We must never give in to terrorism and continue our belief in the rule of law. Uh, another one here. The first caller has assumed, that was William, our first caller of the programme, assumes that justice meted out in Syria will be tough, possibly death. Would he still be happy if, if it was that of six months and release? I expect not, says Mike. Uh, another one here, Max, says, young men and women know full well the consequences of signing up to ISIS or any terror group. Um, they know what it will be. Trouble is, if we were to allow them back here, they would probably get away with a slap on the wrist. Ed says, it's amazing how many people in the UK government or even they themselves have any say over who might go to Guantanamo Bay. Let's take another call. I think the Americans have already said they're not going to be sent to Guantanamo. David is calling us from Fleet in Hampshire. Good afternoon, David. Good afternoon. Hi there, David. So tell me what you've made of what you've heard so far. Uh, I agree with the first caller and uh, the callers that say that the crimes should be tried in the country where they are committed. And... uh, provided that there is a, an adequate and functioning legal system there. Uh, and we should not uh, hold ourselves superior to other countries, we, because, as one of the other callers has said, the bulk of the crimes have been against the citizens of those countries. Mm. When we suspect, as we do with these um Jihadists who were rather prosaically um, please dubbed don't the use Beatles. The word jihadists, please. What, tell, tell me why you you dislike because that, that word. Because that holy. A jihadist it, it means a holy warrior. Mm-hmm. The, these people cloak themselves in uh, religion to justify their murder and rape of people who do not follow their faith. So please, it's insulting to the victims of. Uh, people that they kill and, and, and rape, to use that phrase. It's uh, journalistic mm. sloppiness. OK, well, I, I will, and I understand that you also have a, a, a great, 
Well, a great deal invested in this argument. You lost someone, didn't you, in a terrorist attack? I lost my son in Algeria in a terrorist attack along with over 30 other innocent victims. Now, there has been an inquest in this country and there are... The Algerians are holding suspects which we expect to come to trial this year. Mm-hmm. I have been appointed an Algerian lawyer by the Algerian government and together with a British lawyer who is working with him will represent me in an Algerian court. So that is how it should be, that suspects should be brought to trial in the country in which they commit mm. the crime. Can I just put this this to you? Um, Tobias Elwood is the Home Office Minister, who, or he lost a brother. I, I don't know whether you do know or yes, don't I know do about know that. that. He lost yes. his brother in Bali. And he said this week, given the scale of foreign fighters, we should consider an agreed international process involving The Hague, which ensures terrorists from any origin are transparently and fairly held account for their actions? I Well, I respect his uh, opinion, um, but will it... But there's no mechanism in place for that to happen at the moment, and it could take years for that to... for international agreement to occur. Mm-hmm. And isn't there a phrase, justice delayed is justice denied? Isn't that not correct? Mm-hmm. So therefore, they should be brought to justice when the uh, when the evidence uh, is is there, and they should be brought to justice before a court, provided that it is a a, a functioning legal system in the country in which they committed their crimes. David, thank you very much for calling, and also um, I'm very very sorry that you lost your son. Um, it's something that I hope few of us ever have to go through. Let's uh, take another call here. Uh, John Wyatt is calling us from Bristol. Good afternoon, John. Uh, Good afternoon, Anita. Hi there, John. Uh, What did you want to say? Uh, It's simply this. It's a matter of jurisdiction. Um, If uh, a Syrian beheaded a French journalist in Bermondsey, he would be tried in the Old Bailey. Uh, Insofar as the gentleman, uh, Jihadi John, these were basic crimes. They weren't war crimes. They were not gassing hundreds of people or murdering people in some pogrom. Uh, the Syria is a state and it has rules and regulations and doubtless it has courts. Uh, I don't know for myself the intricacies of Syrian law, but I'm sure that where a person is killed by another person, they have a due process which could be followed. Mm. And this is what should happen in this case. However, the complication here is that they are being held by the Kurds. The Kurds are at war with the Syrian government. Um, Are we going to say, okay, uh, the Kurds, who the Syrians don't recognise as a state, will have the the mechanisms to try in a judicially transparent way these men and women? In my view, the Kurds should make a transfer agreement. I dare say there are people who are held in Syria who the Kurds want and transfer them to Syria. And if the Kurds won't transfer them, then some dominant state which is assisting the Kurds should impel them to transfer them. Mm. They certainly shouldn't be brought back here because uh, our process has 
denied them citizenship by removing it from them. So we no longer uh, should accept accept them back. Can I just? They're I mean, gone. just uh, that we we are going to move on in a moment. I know there are a lot of people who want to talk about. Um, the issue of, of young people and school meals, and I'm very happy to do that. 03700 100 444. But just, just before we leave this, I don't know if the name Max Hill means anything to you, but he was the QC, the government's independent reviewer of terrorism legislation. And until fairly recently, he was arguing, look, um, it isn't even right to persecute all of those, prosecute, I should say, all of those who joined ISIS, because in his words, some had travelled out of a sense of naivety, possibly with some brainwashing along the way. Um, we've also heard from people like Andrew Parker, the Director General of MI5, saying, look, we need more intel. We need more intel to win this war. Uh, what, how do you react to both of them? I was myself involved in special branch intelligence, and I don't think that we would get much intelligence from Jihadi John, for instance. OK, sorry, that, that's not a sentence that I was expecting to hear. OK, no. w- w- and why, why do you say that? Well, what uh, from the photographs and the videos we've seen, There doesn't seem to be much information that can be gained from him. He's a person who's transferred his interests to uh, ISIS Mm. and is administering justice as he sees it on their behalf, which, as uh, the Syrian authorities might well see it, is people killing other people Mm -hmm. within their state. Okay. I mean, I I really didn't expect you to say um, that you had been involved in special branch, but it's good to have expertise like that. Um, Thank you very much for your call. I wish we had more time to talk about this. Uh, But we have calls stacking up to talk about the issue of um, hungry holidays. Children who are fed at school, they're from low-income families. Sometimes the only hot meal they get is is on school premises. And then they break up for half-term, Easter, Christmas holidays, and they go back to not having enough to eat. Uh, What do we do about this? Should we be paying for round-the-year food, meals, for children such as these. Susan Pearson has called us. Hello, Susan. Hello. Hi, you're working Hi, you're working in Sheffield, I understand. That's right, yes. Voluntary Action Sheffield. And tell me tell me what, what does your group do and um, what should the nation as a whole be doing? That's a great question. Um I called in because um I felt that I ought to feedback from a pilot that was run in Sheffield last summer that we did in partnership with six community organisations and I think the question on air was how does it work? How, how do these young people get given hot food during school holidays? And the answer to that question is they're not fed in school settings, they're fed in community settings with organisations that run programmes during holiday time for families and we subtly included food and meals and information about nutrition on, that, on the back of the activities that were already planned. So that was how it was done in Sheffield last year. And it's interesting that um, the North Lanarkshire Council today, um, with a pilot project offering uh, food to pupils in Copebridge over the Easter holiday, mm. um, is, is over the weekend as well. So that, that's another angle on it, which um, we hadn't addressed in Sheffield. Can I just read a couple of thoughts? Because there's, a, there's a, 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 I think one would call it a kickback um, to this idea of feeding children mm. all year round. So, for example, Ian has just texted in to say why would children go hungry on weekends it's because parents spend their money on alcohol tobacco mm-hmm. drugs and the lottery mm-hmm. and children go into uh, go to the back in preference to enjoyment another one here uh, eric snow says this smacks of state dependence why not do the laundry and pop around for a little light dusting while you're at it if people can't feed their children they should get more money if uh, and another one here 
don't parents feel responsible for feeding their children during the school holidays? Um, what do you say to them? Yeah, I can hear those arguments there. And I think one of the ways we addressed that sort of stigma last summer when we ran the pilot in Sheffield was we didn't actually call it holiday hunger. Um, in deference to Sheffield Hallam University, you're doing the evaluation on this, they refer to it as filling the holiday gap, which is what happens to those families who can't afford to feed their kids all year round. Mm, but you see the so, argument that the, the argument that's coming from those tweets, and, t- and they all just came in a welter, which is why I mm, read them together, mm, is that mm. you know somehow the, the families are feckless who can't feed their children. Yeah. We're talking about families who are using food banks, um, families who are under the radar, families like um, we were hearing about earlier on who are actually have one parent, at least one parent in, in work but on low wages who are really struggling. So in order to not stigmatise the ones who really have the need... Our programme was a universal one. It, right. it, it didn't stigmatise. Um, but you, you're right, there'll be families out there who fit those criteria from those naysayers that you've just... OK. Started. All right, th- thank you very much, Susan, for your call. Martin Smith uh, is calling. Jane, thank you for being patient. Patricia, thank you for being patient. Uh, Martin, first of all, what, what did you want to say? Um, I, I agree with uh, what Susan said, because um, there are some... It's a, basically, um, that parents are responsible for feeding their children. Now, there are some cases where through illness or mental illness or um, all sorts of things that they're just not able to do that. And, of course, the state and the voluntary organisation should step in there. But our work uh, in both Lancashire and down in in Devon is largely that um, a lot of it is parental choice. Um, If all the child allowance was put onto food for the children and clothing for the children, and they would prioritise the children more than beer and cigarettes, uh, and perhaps a sky package on the television, then there would be much less child uh, hunger. Mm. And I think one of the things that we found um, when we were in, in the Midlands, um, the guy who came to do the gas fitter, we we owned our house. Um, we were mortgaged up to the hilt. Um, we could only have sort of beans and, and egg uh, uh, for our meals, but we'd chosen to do that. And he was uh, calling us idle rich and all that sort of stuff. But he was spending more on beer and cigarettes than we were on the mortgage. Okay, all right, Martin. And it really comes down to a, a, yeah. a parental choice. In some cases, now lots of cases, they have no choice. And yeah, I well, I mean, because we, because I have to say, you know, we're getting some texts and tweets um, saying that and getting very annoyed by the presumption that it's it's parents who don't care about their kids somehow. Martin, thank you for your call. Another one here, Julia says, many parents are going without food so their children can eat. They're not spending non-existent money on drink and cigarettes. Uh, Stephanie says, hungry children don't learn well. While every effort should be made to make sure they're adequately fed during term time, surely holiday meal provision should be a matter for social services, not their schools. Jane uh, is calling us from Provence. Hello, Jane. <laughs> yes, good afternoon. Bonjour. Yes, what did you want to tell bonjour, us? Bonjour. No, it's just I live in a small rural market town, uh, population 1,002, roughly like that, and there's a central kitchen um, which provides meals throughout the week for um, the school and meals seven days a week for um, elderly people, the housebound on a sort of meals meals on wheels sort of system, um, and also for post-discharge from hospital patients who need to have meals uh, sent to the house. And so the transport network exists. There is no um, stigma 
uh, because the, the, these little bands go around to all sorts of people. They go to grandma, they go to the old lady next door. And that would be a way of doing it. I've thought about this, though. I don't think it would be worth work on a, in a big city. I think it would have to be done on a small scale, so borough by borough. Mm-hmm. I don't think it could be. But it was just to say, because I was struck by, like Mrs Pearson, I was struck by the fact that nobody actually addressed the question of how this could be done. And that is a way that it is done. Jane, With thank you. a network of small vans yeah. taking uh, food from the central kitchen. Good, good, good. No, no, thank you very much. Good to have a, a, a peek at, at, at what you are seeing with your eyes over there. Patricia Stephen calling us from Farnham. Hi, Patricia. Yes. Um, well, I'm horrified because I think a lot of the women now, these very poor ones, we save a lot of food for them, but they don't know how to cook. Now, if they're going to school porridge, I often make that. It's dirt cheap. I just think they can't be bothered. And really, I'm very sorry for the ones whose parents are ill, something like that. That's quite different. Mm. But the others are just, as people abroad say to me, they're people that would think in England they can get something for nothing. Okay, okay, Patricia, Bye. thank you. I'm just going to read a couple more and then we'll take one call on homelessness because I think the sort of the arguments are spilling over from one side to the other. Uh, school dinners, 365 days a year. Even better, why don't we just hand over our children to local government from birth and let them bring the children up in a council-run children's home, says Andy in Chichester. Uh, the same kind of sort of arguments or similar ones I, I've seen coming through on, on homelessness when we talked about the person who had died of cold near the entrance to the Houses of Parliament this week. Uh, some people saying, well, you know, there's only so much that can be done. Um, Sinead Wheeler is calling us. And Sinead, you have been homeless, is that right? That's right, yeah. Tell yeah, us. For a short time, yeah. And I know that um, I was able to be helped and be okay because I didn't have many other issues. So um, I didn't have... Any, I don't know about the guy that mm. died this week. I don't know what his situation was. But, but, but just in a, in, because it's, we're, or, we're, we're running out of time, but you, yeah. I mean, you were a graduate. Um, you yeah. haven't... And yeah. through, you know, just circumstance, you ended up homeless. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so these people who are saying, you know, it's, it's, it's drink, drugs... Uh, and um, excessive living. It, it wasn't the case for you. Sinead, will you call up again? Because I'm sure we will do this subject again and we are so sadly out of time. And to all of those callers who called this week and didn't get on, my apologies. Same time next week. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Any Answers. Don't forget, if you want to hear any questions or you'd like to invite the programme to your venue, then please go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for any questions. I'm Anita Arnand. Thank you for listening.